since we have with us somebody who is not addressing Anglo-Saxon scholarship, unless you want to subsume Dutch scholarship under Anglo-Saxon. Uh, we have three great speakers, uh, Dr. Rashid Khalidi, uh, Dr. Bshara Domani, and Dr. Lex Fackenberg, who will address this theme. Uh, one of the frames that have been informing Anglo-Saxon scholarship is biblical studies and the notion of the Holy Land, which Bshara uh, Domani will start by addressing. And since the 19th century, this biblical frame has been pivotal in uh, energizing an army of philologists, archaeologists, ethnographers, uh, and archaeologists. Uh, one of the moments in this uh, unity of scholarly activity and policymaking has been the formation of the Palestine Exploration Fund. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go over it. But uh, the work of the fund, particularly the work of Wilson and Condor, has been uh, very important in combining these four disciplines, philology, archaeology, ethnography, and biblical studies, in uh, leading to very important contributions to British imperial uh, policies in the Middle East. Some of the work has been consciously coordinated with policymakers in London, and some of it involved innocent people who thought they were doing uh, this uh, enchanted scholarship. And uh, I think uh, the two of the speakers will address this issue. And of course, the other pivotal moment in which this unity of scholarship and policymaking evolved was in the early century when, after the war, when the Balfour Declaration was formulated within a frame of philo-Semites, people who thought that Palestine belongs to the Jews, and anti-Semites who wanted to get rid of the Jews uh, in a home of their own. And their work was actually also framed by much of the Orientalist scholarship that uh, Anglo-Saxons was involved. One theme that uh, might be interesting to, to look at in, in the frame is uh, how uh, the term Anglo-Saxon unites British, particularly English and Scottish scholarship with uh, North American scholarship in this. I don't know to what extent the speakers will do. Uh, but without further ado, I will introduce um, Professor Bshara Domani who uh, I had the privilege of being associated with uh, during his period of teaching at Bezet University and later at uh, Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, where he's teaching now. Uh, Bshara is the author of Rediscovering Palestine, Merchants and Peasants in Jabal Nablus, 17 to 19, and editor of Family History in the Middle East, Household Property and Gender, and academic freedom after September 11th. Please. Uh, I'm amazed to see so many of you here. It's been a very long day. Uh, I 
thank the Lebanese Minister of Culture and the Institute for Palestine Studies for this opportunity, uh, especially the Institute for Palestine Studies, an institution that has contributed more than any other uh, institution of its kind to shaping the narrative of who the Palestinians are, their history, and their current conditions. <coughs> and this is a theme I'll be coming back to at the end of this lecture uh, talk. <laughs> Uh, let me begin with some qualifying remarks. Uh, Rashid Khali and I agreed on the division of labor. I'll be talking about uh, writings uh, on Palestine before 1948, and specifically the works, uh, for the most part, of historians. Um, and let me begin by qualifying the word history or historical discipline. History books are more often than not moral and political interventions disguised as objective, factual, and scientific narratives of the past. They tell us more about the writer and her world than the subject matter in most cases. Um, thank you. I would like to also note that the division of the panels uh, into fields of reduction of knowledge according to linguistic markers is, of, is, is fascinating, but I think um, overstresses the differences between Arab, Francophone, and Anglophone historians. And I, what I will be arguing is that the commonalities between them are also important. In fact, they're primary and striking. Uh, I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, it's hard to speak of Anglophone scholarship on Palestine without speaking about George Antonius or someone like Albert Harani or Edward Said, who wrote primarily and exclusively in English and were very much part of the Anglo-Saxon university culture and had much more in common with that culture than they did with many other of the people that they spoke about. So um, to set them aside arbitrarily, uh, I'm not sure how useful that is, but I agreed uh, not to discuss in this paper works by Palestinians, Arabs, and Israelis who write primarily in English try to focus mostly on, on others. Um, so the more useful perhaps than uh, linguistic markers would be uh, looking at the genealogy of categories or units of analysis that are deployed in these works of history. Uh, the narrative and plotment use, and by that I mean the structure of the story that they tell, and the types of sources or archives that they interrogate. So these will be the three measures that I'll be using to talk about the development of Anglophone uh, literature on Palestine before 1948. And I wanna tie all of them uh, to the, of course, issue of how they relate to the uh, political uh, uh, and intellectual currents of the time in which they were written. And this, uh, relationship between intellectual production and political time um, is very apparent. In fact, it's striking in the case of Palestine um, for two reasons. One, of course, is that Palestine is a highly charged symbolic um, entity. There's no colonial or nationalist conflict in modern times that has received as much attention, scholarly and public, as that of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And there's no territory outside of Europe and the United States that has elicited as deep an interest in the, in the Western world in general, in fact, as that of Palestine or more commonly the Holy Land. And the only possible exception would be Pharaonic Egypt. There is uh, 
Quranic Egypt mania uh, that was and continues. Um, and the second reason is this conflict is still hot. And so there are powerful regional international implications for the, for the scholarship itself. Um, and that is why we often uh, heard in, in today uh, explanations about trends in knowledge production that are very much tied to political markers. Um, and I think it's because it's largely true for Palestine. The title of my talk is Erased by the Book. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean simply that Palestine has been too important to the West, religiously and in terms of honing a kind of a uh, secular enlightenment identity for both. It's been too important to allow the Palestinians to be written into history, much less allow them political rights to the land itself. The intense concern in these writings with the land and the conflict over it stands in stark contrast to the silence regarding the people who lived in it. Similarly, the intense interest we see in Western, what I call Western moments, biblical period, the Crusader period, and the post-World War I period. If you go to the Library of Congress and you just pile the books on top of each other, deal with these periods, and you compare them to everything else that's been written on all the other periods, uh, you get basically three spikes, and there's very little on anything else. And as a matter of course, there's great emphasis on outside force, the forces that create history with a capital H, that our causality is tied to uh, an external force and the people who live in that land are not written into history because they are felt to be completely uh, inconsequential in terms of what they do. So uh, um, much of what's written on Palestine and Arab-Israeli conflict really is more revealing of Western religious imagination, of Western political interest and cultural dynamics than about uh, the history of the Palestinians or even of Palestine itself. So despite the prolific output of books, there is a real poverty of knowledge and a remarkable narrowness of focus. Now these comments, of course, are overly general. Uh, they gloss over some important exceptions and they don't take into account exciting new trends in the last generation in knowledge production about Palestine and the Palestinians and I'll get to that later. Um, let me begin by saying that if we just step back paint with a very broad brush three um, major shifts I would argue can be seen in the frameworks of analysis used in the vocabulary employed and in the sources that are interrogated um, and these shifts are as follows the holy land period the state or slash Palestine period and the society slash Palestinians period this has been the move over the last 100, 200 years. The foundational moment for all modern writings on Palestine is the discovery of a religio-territorial space called the Holy Land in the 18th and 19th century. The invention of the Holy Land is really a product of a marriage 
between faith in the Bible as the ultimate truth and faith or belief in modern scientific mo methods of knowledge production, which, which sought to translate the religious faith into precise units of measurement, precise units of measurement. In this process, uh, the marriage produced new disciplines, such as archaeology and biblical geography. In fact, the mandates of historic, uh, of mandate, the, sorry, the boundaries of Mandate Palestine were shaped directly by the way these disciplines traced where Christ walked. The spatial boundaries drawn by biblical geographers, especially Adam Smith, were used uh, by the British to draw the boundaries of Palestine. And in fact, the idea of the Holy Land still has a very firm, strong hold on the public imagination. But more importantly, uh, the invention of the Holy Land produced a hegemonic discourse that became commonly shared and accepted by all the big ideologies that followed later. Orientalism uh, is an important foundational moment for nationalist discourses, both Zionist and Palestinian, and for Islamist ones as well. They may differ, and they do differ politically with each other, but they have a sh common shared set of assumptions that organize the kind of histories that they tell. And these assumptions are based on three really crude binaries, active versus passive, internal versus external, and modern versus traditional, and they consider there's a rupture between them that comes at the point of Western intervention, mostly seen as, in the case of Palestine, as happening uh, either in 1882 or for historians in uh, 1831, 1882 being uh, the official date of the first Zionist, European Zionist settlements in Palestine, and 1831 being the date of the Egyptian invasion the assumption being that they brought with them, uh, of course, the rupture caused by Napoleon and his invasion of Egypt in 1798. The sources that we see being used um, by this production of literature uh, during the 18th and 19th and well into the 20th century, I've <laughs> uh, summarized in three words or three kind of symbols or icons. The tripod, that is to say, three-legged instrument, uh, the shovel, and the notebook. Uh, the tripod uh, was used by people, for example, in the Palestine Exploration Fund in their survey of Western Palestine for their specific measuring instruments of how to precisely measure the Holy Land. It was also used by artists who produced incredible paintings and lithographs, the most famous perhaps being David Roberts, a Scottish artist and later member of the Royal Academy. And his uh, lithographs of uh, the Holy Land and Egypt, in fact, uh, are showcased in major museums throughout the world and really um, influenced the way people understood this region. But not just them, others used the tripod as well. And that is the photographer putting a tripod where the camera was used intensely in Palestine from the very first moment of its invention. In fact, the first moving images, as far as we can tell, by the Lumiere brothers, I heard this the other day from uh, May, um, uh, Masri, uh, perhaps were shot in Palestine 
itself. So you can see here the marriage between religion, in many ways a biblical frame, and science. And until today, this idea that Israel combines both uh, is so strong and is as realized as the basis of influencing modern narratives. The shovel, of course, refers to um, the science of archaeology and digging up uh, the evidence for the biblical story. And the notebook refers to the European gaze, the traveler accounts, the missionary reports, the pilgrimage narratives, the consular records, the memoirs, all of which really generated an image of what Palestine is. And that basic image was very much influenced by the restorationist movement in England, um, one of its major figures being Lord Shaftesbury, who is the one who invented what we think of as a Zionist slogan, a land without a people for a people without a land. It was a Christian slogan. Uh, quote, a country without a nation in need of a nation without a country. Is there such a thing, he writes in his diary, to be sure there is, the ancient and rightful lords of the soil, the Jews. The idea of the Palestine Exploration Fund, um, and in 1865, James Finn, the British consular in Jerusalem and a leading restorationist who established the Palestine Exploration Fund, he said, quote, for the purpose of encouraging scientific exploration, archeological research, and the cartographic mapping of the Holy Land, it offers advice and financial support to encourage Jews to immigrate to Palestine and form agricultural colonies. So the two uh, came together. The state shift to the state as a unit of analysis, uh, as opposed to the Bible, uh, took place really beginning in the 1920s and went very strongly until the 1970s. Uh, historical writings for this period really pondered the dilemma or the dilemmas of nationalist assertions on the one hand and colonial patrimony, all at a time of diminishing European power. History was essentially political narratives situated in the larger context of the demise of empires and the explosive rise in the number of states. Right after World War I, there was an enormous number of states that came into existence. Uh, of course, genocide and the devastations of World War II and the growing popularity of the idea that the right to self-determination applies to non-whites as well. And here you can see Palestinians asserting themselves from a period of being completely erased by the book to a time when they are becoming a nuisance. Uh, they're becoming obstacles in the way of uh, state formation. And um, I have a quote here by a British a teacher uh, and a near the end of the mandate period where he says, Palestine, quote, could be such a lovely country if the people in it were different. So now th there is this sense that, well, perhaps there are, the population may be considered a people, not just a collection of individuals who are part of nature, the rock, the tree, the sheep, and the shepherd. They're all natural. They're not a people. Um, now they're thinking in terms of a people, but a people who really are becoming an obstacle in the way of progress. Um, and here the sources used, of course, uh, were sources that were developed by states. In the case of the <laughs> the Britain, uh, nothing more ubiquitous than the commission. There were 19 British commissions in Palestine that produced literally tall stacks of statistics and books uh, in which scholars would later use to try to understand uh, what was going on uh, at that time. 
um, one of the British officers quipped, uh, Palestine is, not a l is a land of committees, not a land of milk and honey. <laughs> now, um, two types of archives really dominated our sources by historians for that period, the European state archives and the Ottoman imperial archives. And all of them were based on three constellations of practices. The first was counting. Population census, conscription ledgers, taxation uh, rolls, imports, exports, and other so-called considered hard data that historians became very reliant on. Another constellation of practices was that of administration. And here, of course, underlying all of this is the idea that the state is an engineer. And the state is the one that produces modernity and progress. It's the culmination of the era of the Enlightenment. Um, new institutions such as municipality councils, new schools and military uh, academies, new forms of communication and transportation, all of which produced paperwork by the kilo. They formed the backbone of modernization type narratives written at that time. And the third constellation of practices uh, is the fabrication of property and notions of right, such as, for example, the codification of Islamic law under the Ottomans in the form of the Mijella in the 1870s, or the Ottoman land law of 1858, and so on and so forth. Uh, a third stage we can think of, and by the way, everything in this conference and in most uh, such lectures always in goes in threes. There's always three stages or three explanations. Uh, and this one is no different. Um, the third is um, a shift towards society uh, and specifically the Palestinians as an object of interest of historians for the first time really. And we see that happening again with some important exceptions really in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the success of the anti-colonial movements in the 50s and the 60s, the Algerian Revolution, for example, the rise of radical cultural politics on race, gender, environment, class, uh, the ability of the Palestinian National Movement to impose itself, the Palestinian Liberation Organization as the sole legal representative of the Palestinian people, that was a revolution in itself. And massive acts of resistance, really, uh, culminating uh, in what Rashid Khalid considers to be the only successful uh, Palestinian uh, moment, which is the first intifada. Uh, and that really created a tremendous interest among scholars in actually in actual Palestinians as opposed to Palestine or as opposed to the Holy Land. And, um, and they relied a lot on locally generated sources, uh, oral history, uh, court records, whether church records, Islamic court records, the built environment, civil institutions uh, of various kinds, material culture, crafts, textiles, folk practices, diaries, letters, works of art, music, fiction, etc. These became the things that people turned to in order to understand Palestine and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And in so doing, for the first time, they shed some light on really marginalized spaces. There are certain parts of Palestine that don't get historians at all, hardly. Hebron, for example, <laughs> or Gaza, they have very few historians compared to histories of Jerusalem, etc. Um, groups, merchants, peasants, women, uh, etc., became of the interests, um, and periods that had not been studied. When I first started my own work in the 80s, 
there was not a single book on Palestine in the 17th century. And there was only one uh, on the 18th. And now th this period is of great uh, interest uh, for historians because they see in it as the key formative moment for Palestinian society of the 20th century. Uh, the, the families, the property regime, uh, the social structure, et cetera, were really formed during that period. You cannot understand the 20th century without understanding the 17th and 18th centuries, for example. Now, it's too early to judge, I think, where we're going in the post-Oslo, post-Cold War period in terms of historical writings on Palestine. But two trends are worthy of note. I have one minute left, I know. Uh, on Anglophile histories on Palestine, the Arabs are accountable. First is the resurfacing of civilization and religion as key units of analysis, uh, especially following the failure of the Arab Nationalist Project the signing of a peace agreement between Egypt and Israel, both of which were discussed today, and the Islamic Revolution in Iran, I might add, and of course 9-11. The second is that scholars are turning their gaze <laughs> eastward. <laughs> um, the current generation of scholars is really growing under growing up under the shadow of massive U.S. military involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. They are absorbing a political vocabulary based on a Sunni-Shia divide as a framing device for understanding the world. And they take for granted that the U.S.-Iran confrontation is the primary regional dynamic. Meanwhile, the Palestinian national movement seems to be moribund. The Israeli colonization project is in high gear. And globalization is undermining the centrality of the state as a focus of intellectual inquiry. Now, so where does this leave the once luminous topic of Palestine and Arab-Israeli conflict? That remains to be seen. What is clear is that the modes or the formats of knowledge production, uh, books, universities, professors, libraries are losing their privileged place as the think tanks, the internet, are replacing the university and library in many ways. And this is especially true when it comes to historical writings on Palestine because um, most academics who actually take the time to study the conflict in detail and the history in detail, uh, regardless of whether they're Israeli, Palestinian, or American, or actually agree on all the major facts because they're inescapable. And so that has pushed in many ways those who absolutely understand the significance of controlling or shaping the narrative about who the, what Palestine is, who the Palestinians are. It pushed them to really abandon the universities and abandon the monograph and abandon deep research and invest their monies and their time in blogs and internet sites and think tanks and so they can spin that conflict and control its representation after they had really lost the academic ground for doing so. And we see this happening in a very big way in the United States especially. So the fundamental challenge, and I will end here, is not so much the lack of sufficient sources or facts or research, but the power of framing the conflict how to take control or shape 
the narrative. How can Palestinians do that? Um, especially at a moment when this discursive erasure, the erasure by the book that has been going on for 200 years, really, is now uh, been given almost material form by the Zionist colonial project, which pushed it to extremes. Palestinians are losing the two deepest and greatest reservoirs or treasures for understanding their narrative. And these are the landscape itself. If you take satellite photos of what's happened in the last 50 years in Palestine, the land has been completely reshaped in a way that hasn't for 2,000 years. And it's very difficult to understand what it was like before. Uh, and as we know from our ethnographic studies of the 18th and 19th and early 20th century, Palestinian living memory is very much tied and influenced by relation with material spaces, the trees, the orchards, the groves, the houses, etc. And the second thing that they are losing uh, is the society itself, the fragmentation that we see taking place among the Palestinians, inability to see each other, to even visit each other, um, uh, the ability to, the bonds that create something we call a national memory are being systematically and bureaucratically pulled apart by a whole range of legal jurisdiction, jurisdictions uh, that um, the United States and other Arab countries, I should say, are, and Israel are part of creating this matrix. And uh, that is uh, a major challenge for Palestinians and how to reunite their body politic uh, in that respect. I think Bashara Dumani was too modest to indicate that his book triggered all these recent studies, but uh, I highly advise you to look at his uh, History of Jabal Nablus, which is available up uh, outside, published by the Institute for Palestine Studies, which was a, a, an important uh, study, a, a breakthrough in understanding the social transformation in the late Ottoman period in central Palestine. Our uh, next uh, speaker is uh, Professor Rashid Khalidi, and he will talk on the treatment of the Palestinian question in Anglo-American works since 1948. Uh, Rashid is Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, and his recent uh, publications include Sewing Crisis, American Dominance, and the Cold War in the Middle East. Uh, a very important work, The Iron Cage, the story of the, of the Palestinian struggle for statehood is now available in Arabic. That's right. And um, a very important work, um, an earlier work, 1996, Palestinian Identity, the Construction of Modern National Consciousness. Uh, in addition, uh, Rashid is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Thank you, Sani. Um, I'm going to speak in English, uh, and I will go as quickly as I can because I have a paper that I'll try and summarize for you. I apologize to the translators in advance. Um, 
Great Britain and the United States have been the two main external forces that determined the general thrust of the Palestine question. Um, I agree with Bashara. There are many internal forces, but of the external forces, uh, Britain and the United States were the most important ones. And this has been true at least since the time of the Balfour Declaration, and it remains true at the end of the first decade of the 21st century. Many factors played a part in cementing support, the support for Zionism of its two primary international sponsors. In winning over the British and American political classes and their respective publics to the cause of Zionism and Israel, both scholarly and non-academic writings in English played a crucial role. Indeed, I would argue that the hegemony of Zionism in the field of ideas and in Anglo-American academic and public discourse was a vital precondition for its successes in the political and diplomatic arenas. Now, the Zionist narrative was already dominant in the United Kingdom and in the United States before 1948 when my story begins. It became even more firmly entrenched in the six decades since then through writings in history, politics, journalism, and literature. I can't cover all of this production in a short paper like this. Um, in fact, I think there may be more writings on Zionism in Israel in English than in any other language, with the possible exception of Hebrew. The reason for this is not hard to understand. Zionist leaders always understood perfectly where to focus their efforts to gain the external support that was vital in their effort to turn an Arab country into a Jewish state and to create an impregnable position for it in a hostile region. And it was to Britain and later to the United States that they looked for this support. So this paper will examine very briefly books in English covering the period since 1948, looking at how this narrative, this Zionist Israeli narrative, uh, attained its preeminent status. It's worth noting that in some quarters, in America in particular, to even suggest that this narrative is hegemonic is considered offensive, while at the same time, any attempt to challenge this narrative provokes strong reactions. So does any suggestion that the Zionist movement in Israel were not always and invariably underdogs or victims. Paradoxically, this sense of victimization is a cornerstone of the Zionist narrative. Instead of the history of the modern Jewish presence in Palestine being told as the litany of successes and triumphs that it is, this history is rather treated as an appendage to the narrative of genuine Jewish victimhood over the two millennia of European history culminating in the Holocaust. In other words, it's a history of tragedy and victimization and uh, what has happened in Palestine since uh, uh, the, over the past century and more is treated as an appendage to that. Now, while this narrative of victimization was just as triumphant in the Anglo-American world of letters and scholarship as uh, Zionism and Israel were in Palestine, uh, this paper touches on some of the challenges to this narrative, in particular in the last few decades, and how it's been possible to pose a challenge to it. In the immediate wake of the 1948 war, and in the decades down to the 67 war, the general tenor of most writing in English on Palestine and the Arab-Israeli conflict was driven by uh, Zionist and Israeli concerns and attitudes, specifically 
much attention was lavished on the supposedly miraculous nature of the establishment of Israel in the face of Arab opposition and in the face of what was described as the indifference or hostility of much of the rest of the world to the Zionist project uh, with a narrow focus on the supposed opposition of the British. Naturally, this involved concentration on the years after the 1939 white paper when the British did try to restrict Jewish immigration to Palestine because they needed to win Arab support in view of the looming uh, world war. This approach studiously ignored the two preceding decades during which unstinting British support was crucial to the entrenchment in Palestine of the Yeshuva, the Jewish community, which grow, grew from under 10% of the population in 1917 to over 31% in 1939, and which had come to dominate uh, Palestine's economy by 1939. This narrow focus mirrored the Israeli narrative, which is of an anti-colonial struggle for self-determination against the anti-Semitic British. It may be difficult for this audience to believe it, but that's what most Israelis actually think. It was only recently, with the publication of Tom Segev's One Palestine Complete, that it was possible for English-speaking readers to find a comprehensive work that shattered that myth. In most of the literature produced before 1967, the Arabs were portrayed extremely negatively with dark hints that they were driven by anti-Semitism and indeed were Nazi sympathizers. The Palestinians, if they were mentioned at all, and they generally were not mentioned, were described as having left their homes at their leader's behest, the better to enable the Arab armies to wipe out the fledgling Jewish state. I say this with as much sarcasm as I can because you know that this is not true. This is what is believed. By contrast, the general picture of Israelis in this literature was highly positive. It featured photos of handsome young men and buxom young women in shorts, busy making the desert bloom. That was Israel. The Palestinians didn't exist. In this period, there was also much scholarship addressing the achievements of the new Israeli state in integrating immigrants, building a strong economy, fashioning state institutions, and so forth. Little attention was paid in these works to the crucial role of foreign capital in this process, to the continued support that Israel received from great, the great powers, or to what happened to the Palestinians who had been forced to flee, or those left behind in Israel living under military rule. In my view, the iconic work of the period to 1967 was not a scholarly one. It was rather a thoroughly mediocre, but nevertheless highly influential novel. This was entitled, and according to the obituary of its author, Leon Uris, it equaled the sales of Gone with the Wind, which was the, the best-selling book in American history before that. Together with the Academy Award-winning 1960 movie of the same name, starring, of course, Paul Newman, this book probably did more to disseminate these and other myths than all the English language scholarly publications to this point combined. Exodus, incidentally, was commissioned by a professional public relations expert and a committed Zionist, a man by the name of Edward Gottlieb, who is desirous of improving Israel's image and who chose Uris to send the novel and gave him money and sent him to Israel. Given that many of the basic ideas, I think most of the basic ideas about Palestine and Israel held by an entire generation of Americans who came to maturity during the 60s and 70s, find their origin either in the book or the movie, it can be argued that Gottlieb's inspiration to send Leon Uris to Israel may have constituted one of the greatest advertising triumphs of the 20th century. Needless to say, 
the account purveyed in the bulk of the mainstream academic literature and in popular works like Exodus was totally at odds with reality. A very few Palestinian and Western scholars, one of them, of course, Walid al-Khalbi, pointed this out in the late 50s and early 60s. Among the main points in dispute was Israel's responsibility for the expulsion of three-quarters of a million Palestinians, uh, the majority of the country's population, and the true nature of the 1948 war. A huge edifice of pseudo-scholarship and propaganda was devoted to obscuring the realities of the dispossession of the Palestinians, as well as to showing that the Arabs, who were supposedly much stronger than the Jews in Palestine, had both the intention and the capability to strangle uh, the infant Israeli state at birth, a fate averted only by heroic sacrifice and miraculous good luck. The results of those who challenged this fairy tale in the 50s and 60s were studiously ignored. Instead, most mainstream writing in English repeated these unfounded assertions, which precisely mirrored the founding myths of Israel. It was not until nearly four decades after 1948, in the late 80s, that the writings of people like Walid al-Khalbi, Erskine Childers, and a very few others were substantiated by research based on newly released documents from the Israeli state archives. These were published in a series of books by the so-called new Israeli historians, people like Tom Segev, Tim Hatlafan, uh, Benny Morris, uh, Avi Shleim, and Ilan Pape. Uh, all of whose names I'm sure you know, and many of whose books have in fact been published in Arabic by the Institute. In the interim, and before 67, much had been done to cement this traditional Israeli narrative in the American and British public mind. Uh, in the 60s, however, there were important changes going on in the American Jewish community and in American attitudes towards Israel. As the American historian, the great American historian, a co former colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, uh, Peter Novick, has shown in his masterful work, The Holocaust in American Life, that's actually a book we should translate into Arabic, several factors increased the attachment to Israel of the American Jewish community. One of them was the heightened prominence of the Holocaust as a central feature in American Jewish identity. I grew up in New York. Nobody talked about the Holocaust. The families of Holocaust survivors did not talk about the Holocaust. The word was not used. They knew it had happened, but it was never mentioned in the 50s or into the 60s. Um, so there was a heightened prominence of the Holocaust in American Jewish identity from the 60s onwards. And there were other changes in American Jewish identity as a result of the 67 war, which had a galvanizing effect on American Jewish attachment to Israel. In part, this was a function of a new myth, the myth that on the eve of the June war, Israel faced the possibility of another Holocaust, a myth which, which has come to have almost the status of gospel in certain quarters in the United States. This has become entrenched in American opinion, although all serious scholarship has always shown that not, notwithstanding the fears of the Israeli public, both the Israeli and American intelligence and military communities were unanimous in their assessment that Israel would crush the Arab armies whether or not Israel attacked first and that therefore in June 1967, Israel was never in serious danger of defeat, let alone extermination. In spite of this, the myth is widespread. The growing emphasis on the Holocaust and the increased identification with Israel grew into what have now been institutionalized into two central pillars of American Jewish identity. This was not the case before the 60s, by the way. This was a new development since the 1960s. American Jewish identity thus became much more focused on Israel than before. 
these changes in the views of American Jews, or at least most American Jews, were mirrored by an important transformation in how American public opinion came to view Israel. This was partly influenced by the impact of what was described as another miraculous Israeli victory in 1967. Um, but the prevalence and, and the prevalence of this narrative was the result of much effort devoted by Friends of Israel to establishing this version of reality in scholarship, in journalism, and elsewhere. But another factor played a major role with American public opinion. And this was the fact that the US government increasingly came to see Israel as an ally in its Cold War rivalry with the Soviet Union. This was not always the case. The United States and the Soviet Union both supported the founding of Israel in 1947-48. They both opposed the Anglo-French attack on Egypt in 1956. But by 1967, the United States had become completely aligned with Israel against the Arab states, m many of which were supported by the Soviet Union, in a configuration that continued until the end of the Cold War, until 1989-1991. Now there are many points which may be chosen as tipping points marking the Cold War alignment <coughs> of Israel with the United States. One could talk about President Kennedy's delivery of uh, the first ever US military equipment to Israel in the early 60s, or one could talk about President Johnson's increasing alienation from Egypt and from Gamal Abdel Nasser in 64 and 65, and Johnson's deep sympathy for Israel. His sympathy was derived in part from his close, even intimate friendships with many pro-Israel donors to the Democratic Party and other factors I can talk about during the questions if you're interested. The searing impact of the Vietnam War, I'm told I have five minutes, but I'm gonna just go on as long as I can. <laughs> the searing impact of the Vietnam War on US policymakers was also a factor in causing them to see the world, including the Middle East, in starker Cold War terms than had been the case previously. In looking at English language literature on the Arab-Israeli conflict after 67, it's clear that, that, that the June War played a crucial role in this closer alignment with Israel. I won't talk about the details here. I'll skip a paragraph, so I'll confession to the chair. After 1967, much of the academic writing in the fields of political science, international relations, and policy studies, and with it most of American public opinion, followed the lead of the policymakers. Uh, in general, there was a further demonization of the Arab states, a further demonization of the Palestinians, which emphasized their alignment with the Soviets and their terrorist proclivities. These tropes persisted, in fact, until the end of the Cold War. Now, in the decades since 1967, there have been positive changes in the way the Palestine question was treated in the English language literature. These started first with uh, uh, changes, uh, these changes started first with books published in, in Great Britain, uh, and it was uh, British academic publishers who first issued the works of the Israeli new historians and other scholars who were the first to challenge the received Israeli-influenced version of the history of the conflict. But this eventually spread to the United States. And the fields where this new approach was most visible were comparative literature, history, and anthropology, and a few others. Uh, events in the Middle East also played a part in the evolution of, of thinking in the United States. The growth of the Palestinian National Liberation Movement had a positive impact, and the human face of the Palestinians, which had previously been totally obscured, could be discerned for the first time in writings that appeared in the 1970s and 80s. The Israeli siege and bombardment of Beirut uh, and the subsequent massacres of Sabah and Shatila, uh, which were heavily covered in the US media, played a role of in changing the US view of who was David and who was Goliath in the uh, struggle between Israel and the Palestinians. The first Palestinian Intifada 
reinforced this new sense in American public opinion of the Palestinians rather than the Israelis as underdogs. And as, as Shara said, as my view, it was the major Palestinian victory of the whole last century. Some people could say, I would say, the only major Palestinian victory. Finally, the Madrid-Oslo peace process uh, furthered this process of seeing the Palestinians as human. Much of this progress was undone by the Second Intifada, uh, uh, especially in suicide bombing, which uh, shocked Americans who were deeply affected by the attacks of 9-11 uh, and reestablished a negative perception of Palestinians. Nevertheless, the space had been opened up for both academic and trade publishers to consider publishing more nuanced and balanced treatments of the Arab-Israeli conflict. The very term Palestine, once considered taboo by mainstream publishers, and you heard the way in which this was the case in France, it was even more the case in the United States, was now more acceptable than had been the case previously. The result was the publication of a large number of works that enabled English-speaking readers for the first time to have access to a range, a variety of perspectives. An important role in this process was played not only by the publication of the work of the new historians, Israelis new historians, but also uh, by some of the extensive scholarly production of iconoclastic Israeli social scientists like Ami Ayalon, Baruch Kimmerling, Menachem Fine, Shaul Mish'al, Avram Sela, Gabi Peterberg, Tanya Reinhardt, Shlomo Zand, Gershon Shafir, Zev Sternhel, Edith Zertal, Yael Zerubavel, and I've only mentioned a few of them. There are dozens of Israeli social scientists whose publication in English has had an effect uh, of great importance. They provided unique perspectives on Israel and on Israel's occupation, and they showed that the one-dimensional perspective offered by the Israeli state and its American apologists did not reflect the range of views available within Israeli society itself. Now, much has been published by others that broadened the range of what was available to scholars and general readers, much more than I can talk about here. If there is, and, and I, I can't summarize, but if there's an absence in this range of material on Palestine available in English, it is works by Palestinian and Arab authors. The problem, in my view, is twofold. On the one hand, only a limited amount is being written by Palestinian and Arab scholars in English. Uh, to some extent, this has to do with the weakness of Arab universities, their lack of support for research, and the fact that some Arab academics can't write in English. It also has to do with the difficulties in terms uh, of, of hiring, promotion, and tenure within the American university system for scholars of Arab origins. There's rank discrimination, to put, a, put it bluntly. However, finally, it is related to the tendency of many promising young Arab and Arab-American students to gravitate away from the humanities and social sciences in favor of the professions and other more lucrative fields. How many mothers in this room told their sons and daughters to do engineering, medicine, business, accounting, economics? And how many of them told their children to write history and political science? None, I'm sure. Not one mother, not one father in this room. <coughs> Moreover, most of the wide range of excellent work that's available in Arabic is not translated by contrast with the extensive materials translated from Hebrew. The Institute for Palestine Studies makes a huge effort. A few American academic publishers have also done so, but much more needs to be done. One last phenomenon needs to be mentioned. This is the increasing willingness of major trade publishers in the United States who only care about money, about sales, and which are terrified of controversy to publish works that would previously have been considered too provocative to sell well. Two recent books, Jimmy Carter's Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, and John Mearsheimer and Steve Waltz's 
the Israel lobby and U.S. foreign policy were major publishing successes. They sold hundreds of thousands of copies. They made millions of dollars for the publishers. They showed that it was possible to publish profitable works critical of the received pro-Israel version of events. Now, I have a section on books that didn't do as well. I, I'll skip it, in including most of my own. In conclusion, <laughs> in surveying the range of books on Palestine and related topics that are available to readers of English since the mid-20th century, it's clear that a significant change has taken place. Before 1948, and in the first few decades thereafter, it required great effort to find sources that were not biased in favor of the Zionist point of view. Since then, it's much more possible uh, to find books in the social sciences and in literature and history that espouse diverse views, including some reflecting Palestinian and Arab perspectives. I began by suggesting that the realm of ideas was a major battlefield for those seeking to establish Zionism in Palestine at the expense of its indigenous inhabitants, and that success in this effort was crucial to the success of the entire Zionist project. The intellectual domain was vital. It is still too early to tell whether as a result of this new diversity in English publica publications, there will be a lessening of the intellectual he hegemony uh, that the Zionist perspective achieved and maintained in the English-speaking world for most of the 20th century. And Mushada is right. They've migrated to fields where they have greater chances. Uh, however, I would suggest that the growing availability of work that puts forward entirely new interpretations uh, than that, that were never available before means that readers of English can at last make up their own minds and are no longer exposed mainly to works which give only one tendentious and basically false interpretation of the conflict. Thank you. Yes, yes, I'm very impressed uh, despite your claim. <laughs> I think one, one conclusion uh, we get from uh, Rashid Karzi's talk, apropos his comments on Exodus, is that we should uh, produce a Hollywood movie out of one of your books. <laughs> <laughs> not not Sta starring you, Salim. <laughs> <laughs> not Amarat Yaqubian, I think. Um, our next speaker is uh, Lex Stackenberg, and he will speak on the status of Palestinian refugees in international law. Dr. Stackenberg uh, received his doctorate from the University of Nijmegen, I think that's proper way of saying it, and has been working for years in the field of uh, refugee uh, affairs, first in the Dutch Refugee Council for Ref uh, Dutch Refugee Council in Amsterdam, and uh, several years later with UNRWA in uh, Damascus, Beirut, um, Amman, and uh, currently he is the senior ethics officer at UNRWA. His book, The Status of Palestinian Refugees in International Law, has appeared, uh, published by Oxford University Press and an Arabic version of it was published by the Institute for Palestine Studies in 2003, and it's available here for you to purchase and look at. <coughs> thank you, Salim, and uh, thanks to the Institute for Palestine Studies for the invitation. Where, where should I speak? Yeah, I have a microphone. I will, I will, I think, you know, we only have 15 minutes left before the transla translators need to leave and we will probably have to leave this room. So 
I think I will spare you uh, uh, a lecture on the legal status of, of, of Palestinians, but rather uh, use it also in, 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 in relation to the theme of today uh, to share some insights from my own sort of journey as a researcher on an aspect of the, of the, of the broader question of Palestine, uh, uh, some perspectives both as a researcher but also as, as, as a long-serving uh, employee of, of UNRWA who has been in the region for now more than two decades. Uh, if I go back to uh, my beginning as a, as a refugee worker, uh, Salim alluded to my uh, initial years with the Dutch Refugee Council, uh, one of the things that struck me uh, uh, is not so much uh, what was written on Palestinian refugees at the time, but rather the fact that when I was trying to understand as a young lawyer why the Palestinian refugees were the only category of forced migrants that had been kept outside the general refugee regime and for whom a special agency was created and for whom special provisions were included in the global refugee convention to sort of keep them out and then under certain circumstances take them back in again. What, what, uh, what I was struck by was that when I started to look for answers as to the why and with what results, there was nothing. In the early 80s when I started working on, on, on you know, as a, as, a, as a refugee advocate, as a, as, a, as a lawyer with the Dutch Refugee Council, there was absolutely nothing specifically about the plight of the Palestinian refugees. There were whole libraries, as we've heard today, on the Arab-Israeli conflict, including from a legal perspective, but nothing on the refugees. And it is this curiosity that prompted me uh, a number of years later in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the late 1980s uh, to engage myself in research on the subject specific of, of, of the Palestinian refugees. Uh, uh, and uh, when I joined UNRWA, uh, uh, I initially worked in a program to enhance protection of Palestinians in, in response to the first intifada. Uh, and when I was asked to, uh, to, uh, to write an article about that, and again looked in more detail, I thought, you know, now I'm closer in the region. Maybe I, I, I now find the answer. You know, I, again I discovered, you know, there, there, there was nothing. So that, that prompted me to start. Uh, this doctoral research on the on the uh, status of Palestinian refugees, trying to understand why the Palestinians were treated separately, Palestinian refugees were treated separately, and second, you know, what what then their status was if they were not part of the global international refugee regime. Uh, it was not was not an easy journey at the time, as as there was so 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 little material and uh, and. Uh, but I, s I somehow succeeded in, in, in getting something meaningful together, and I gradually realized that I was sort of, you know, undertaking research on a subject that very, pe very few people had, had, had addressed so far. And, uh, and I was even more privileged when uh, the end result uh, uh, seemed worthwhile enough for Oxford University Press to, uh, to publish it in English, and, and, and then for I, I owe thanks to, to Salim and, and, and Elia Zureik for recommending the, uh, the manuscript to, uh, to Oxford University, for, to the Institute for Palestine Studies uh, that, uh, that commissioned and then published an excellent Arabic translation. Uh, 
now 10 years later more than 10 years later uh, I have uh, I've started to work on a on a second edition of the book uh, together with an excellent Palestinian uh, legal scholar Lina Malek and this has also been a moment to reflect uh, you know how 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 international law has made a difference to to Palestinians and 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 you know if we see the situation on the ground only deteriorating uh, since the uh, since the uh, the, uh, the 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 mid 1990s since Oslo uh, and after six years there is still no no solution to the you know no, no durable solution to the plight of the Palestinians I mean this of course strongly prompts the question as to whether international law does matter for Palestinians and whether uh, whether it, it, it matters to write about it at all. Uh, at the same time, I still, I, I, I strongly believe, I have a very little hesitation to, uh, to, uh, to answer both, both, both questions in the affirmative. International law has, I think, is of increasing importance to, to Palestinian refugees, broadly in, in, in two areas. On the, on the one hand, as long as, as Palestinians are forced to live as, as refugees, international law provides a measure of international protection that is a, a substitute for the protection that normally a national states provide to its citizens through international institutions and uh, other arrangements provided for under international law. Uh, at the same time, international law provides the foundations for the search for a durable solution. That is a solution that would bring an end to the to the to the to the status uh, to, to to Palestinian status as refugees and, and stateless persons. Now, I will not elaborate on on, on these both areas, uh, you know, in, in view of the lack of time. I mean, for those interested, I mean, have a look at my book. And copies in Arabic are are available outside. Has it has it helped? Uh, has has uh, has you know the the increased realization about the significance of international law uh, literature on 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 this on the subject made a difference uh, both both the first and, and and second intifadas have have quite dramatically prompted calls for improved protection of palestinians uh, at the same time uh, clinton's demystification of the so-called permanent status issues through the premature Camp David summit uh, has also triggered a significant debate on, on, on permanent status issues, including the refugee issue. And so as a result, you know, over the last 15 years, a significant body of literature on the Palestinian refugee issue has, has, uh, has seen the light. Uh, and, and, and for someone who is, you know, sort of working on the ground uh, and and has has sort of observed uh, uh, the the developments uh, for for now over two decades. I I, I I strongly feel that the literature on the legal status of Palestinians and more generally on on, on, on the position of Palestinians has contributed to enhance efforts to extend protection to Palestinians. For example, UNRWA, my own organization that does not, unlike its sister agency UNHCR, have protection written into you know its original mandate has over the past decade in particular uh, made I would say dramatic instrides into into mainstreaming into incorporating protection into its work and to a point that it is now a core 
aspect of our core element of our work and, and, and essentially going from the Commissioner General down to you know our teachers and our uh, you know our, our, our junior staff protection is an element for for is 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 a, is, a, is is something that that uh, is is uh, is central to to every official in the organization also UNHCR's involvement with Palestinians outside UNRWA's area of operations which was a major lacuna uh, shameful sort of lacuna in UNHCR's uh, work uh, has has quite dramatically changed over the last over the last decade. Uh, UNHCR shifted its policy on this infamous so-called exclusion clause, this Article 1D of the 51 Conve Convention. It also quite significantly uh, reconsidered its position on statelessness, including statelessness of Palestinians. So there has been significant significant changes also the increased calls for accountability that we that we see in relation to for example uh, uh, the, 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 the the recent war in Gaza but also earlier earlier situations uh, uh, would not have been possible without you know the, 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 the increased uh, always there was would not have been possible without the enhanced uh, body of, 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 of literature on on sort of protection of Palestinians, relevance of human rights for Palestinians. S uh, similarly, on the search for, for a durable solution to the plight of, of the Palestinians, uh, the significant attention that has followed uh, Ken David uh, in, in, in 2000, uh, literature on, on by, by Israeli academics, uh, work by Palestinian and Israeli think tanks, work by, by, by Palestinian and, 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 and other researchers on sort of aspects of the search for uh, a durable solution to the, to the plight of the refugees has resulted in a has first dramatically contributed to, I think, the, the, the realization of the centrality of the refugee issue in um, amongst the, 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 the permanent status issue and in the overall sort of quest for search for Middle East peace. Uh, and also has significantly contributed to sort of, you know, an emergence of an understanding of the contours of, of what a settlement of the refugee issue will, 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 will look like. Uh, and I think there is increasingly a realization, we're, we're, we're now increasingly at a, at, a, at, a, at a realization that if a peace process, if a peace agreement is to deliver sustainable results, then international law uh, uh, has to be at the at the center, and uh, you know has to address basic rights of the Palestinian uh, uh, of the Palestinian refugees. And I think you know uh, I'll close on that note. I'm not sure whether there is much time for debate, but I'll leave that to the chair. Thank you, Rex. I apologize for the pressure we've been putting you under. Uh, we have a few minutes left uh, for discussion. And, uh, before I take uh, people from the floor, I just want to uh, suggest an inquisitory note. Uh, from Bishara's uh, presentation, from Dr. Dumani's presentation, and this is something that I also uh, gleaned from um, Khalidi and Thackenberg. There's a huge volume of 
research, scholarship, that admittedly was done, uh, to put it crudely, for imperial uh, purposes. But yet, one unintended consequence of this is that we have a very rich heritage of systematic examination of the Holy Land of Palestine that has become our bequest. And at least it has wrecked disaster for the people of Palestine in terms of the various contending imperial strategies, whether by Ottomans, uh, certainly by the British mandate and by the Zionist movement and by the other colonial powers. But one consequence is that we have this heritage and we sometimes uh, tend to throw the baby with the bathwater. And it might be salutary to look at this immense amount, immense corpus of uh, studies as a way, at least it's uh, benefiting a whole generation of scholars that are examining the Palestinian issue and the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict in general. So it's just food for thought, and uh, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would like to have some uh, reaction to this comment. Okay, the floor is open. Uh, could you please uh, mention your name uh, before you, you speak? The lady here in front. My name is uh, Najla Hamadi. I teach philosophy at the Lebanese American University. Uh, I'd like to say a few things, uh, starting from uh, Professor Dumani's claim that there is some kind of dichotomy between academics and uh, things on the internet and the tube and whatever. And I've been thinking about this, and uh, it doesn't seem to me that there is such a dichotomy because it seems PR is taking over even academia. And um, this uh, takes me to the idea that it's probably psychological reasons that are always influencing everything. The politics, the writing, and everything. And uh, if we uh, look at uh, the way uh, the Arabs are projecting themselves and the way the uh, Israelis are projecting themselves, we find some uh, very b big disparity because, I mean, the, the Israelis are always uh, acting like uh, they are the uh, underdog, the victim, and even their oppression of women, they, they never announce it. I mean, uh, they, they uh, keep it hushed. And uh, on the other hand, the Arabs are always acting like the one on the horse with the sword and uh, very uh, uh, chauvinistic and uh, fighting and uh, aggressive. And uh, also there is a lot of light on uh, the way uh, Arab women are oppressed. So I, I mean, I, I wonder how come they, they are taking this, these such attitudes that sell very well uh, from a PR point of view, and we are taking attitudes that are uh, quite negative from uh, this point Thank of view. You. May I add one no, thing? No, <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> we have very few minutes left, and we need to allow uh, other people to make intervention. Yes, please.
Hi, my name is John Hayden. I'm a master's student at uh, AUB in political studies. Uh, Professor Damani, I'd like to challenge uh, your thesis on the centrality of the Holy Land as, a, as an idea or trope in the Christian imagination. I think uh, part of cementing the narrative of a seemingly natural entente between uh, Anglo-Protestant Christianity and Zionism is effectively to write out of history in a sense or to not acknowledge multiple exceptions to this, to this general rule. Um, this uh, past summer, I interrogated the uh, Canadian National Archives, and uh, I was astonished by what I found. And uh, admittedly, Canada is a northern garrison state of the British Commonwealth, but at the time that I was looking at it, 1945 to 1948, as a middle power that was managing two empires, bridging Anglo-American interests, it played a decisive role in the uh, partition plan of the United Nations. So I think that this, the cultural discourse in Canada is a particularly interesting case study. As a brief, uh, the, my preliminary findings were suggested that, in fact, the landscape is, the cultural landscape is ex extremely complex. So amongst uh, pro-British, elite Anglo-Protestant cultural circles, you had both s support for Zionism and principled dissent or principled anti-Zionism. Amongst racist and anti-Semitic uh, cultural uh, discussion at this time, you had, again, both support for the Zionist project and opposition to it suggesting a complex uh, uh, landscape. So a, a good example of this is a professor, uh, A.E. Prince from Queen's University, who wrote in the Canadian International uh, Affairs Journal, and also in the, he was the editor of the United Church Bulletin, uh, which had a, a circulation in 1946 of 150,000 people. Uh, so this is a, an, an Anglo-Protestant uh, uh, journal and in which he published very commonsensical, principled, realist, uh, arguments in support of Palestinian self-determination and warned against uh, uh, any support for uh, the Zionist project. So I wondered if you think that this narrative then is ultimately s a satisfactory explanation um, or if we need to acknowledge some of these nuances and, and perhaps what they mean and if you discovered similar examples of anti-Zionist polemic uh, in your own research. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. been two major UN documents which have not been utilized to amplify the, their content and their consequences and in the year of the book <laughs> in Beirut maybe the Institute of Palestine Studies might want to do a couple of seminars or symposium and publish these books because if we let them go by for the next year, they would remain only documents in the UN drawers. And these two documents are the International Court of Justice on the wall, the judgment that it, uh, the opinion that it has given, and on the other hand is the Goldstein uh, report, which unfortunately there has been no Palestinian and Arab serious undertaking to use it as a resource to show a great deal of the distortions that the whole cumulative effect that what Professor Rashid Khalid has mentioned about the books and the distortions and the new narrative. These are, these are principal sources for a narrative 
which can break through into what, in, what, what Andrew Seid used to call the constituency of conscience of the Western world and particularly the United States. Thank you. Uh, in the um, I have a couple of questions. First to uh, Dr. Tackenberg, <coughs> whether your scope of uh, research covered the uh, diaspora Palestinians and uh, Palestinians in uh, Lebanon in particular, given, given uh, their dire situation, the situation they find themselves in, you know, hemmed on both sides, you know, under pretexts of implantation and whatnot, you know. This is uh, one, one thing. Um, another question to Rashid. Um, what has been done to uh, counter the mystification on part of uh, uh, Zionism in the U.S.? You mentioned some uh, authors and writers. This is okay, but uh, in my opinion, this is not uh, enough. I mean, uh, in terms of effort taken to the uh, question of mystification that has been going on for the last 40 years or so. Uh, in terms of uh, what Shara said, it's really um, a grim p scenario that you have drawn about uh, uh, Palestinian academia being uh, eroded, uh, if, if, if I might be correct using this term. Um, and uh, is there a uh, something to reverse the situation right now? Thank you. Okay, we'll take one more intervention from the audience. Please, at the end, and could you introduce yourself? Ms. Andoni. I, I find the Miss Andoni. Ah, thank you. Uh, Rashid, I have, um, you said that the peace process and the negotiations have uh, humanized the Palestinians in the eye of the West. At the same time, the peace process and the negotiations have also qualified this humanity of the Palestinians and defined who's acceptable or not, not only even before the Intifada, even before the militarization of the Intifada. Even Edward Said was vilified for not accepting the terms of the peace process. And when Arafat uh, rejected the terms of surrender, not the, the, the infamous offer by, by uh, uh, the infamous offer by Barak, he became dis indispensable, even his life became indispensable. So I find this, either I didn't understand you or or I find it problematic, would you please answer? Thank you. Uh, okay, we'll make an exception because the mic is covered. I'm asking Rashid Aydan. I mean, from the Israel تجاوز المرحلة الأولى التي بدأ منها وهي مرحلة مراجعة حرب 48 ومسؤولية إسرائيل عن المأساة الفلسطينية لكن اليوم الأسماء الأخرى اللي ذكرتها خصوصا سلومو كان والآخرين بدينا نشعر وكأنه التأريخ الجديد في إسرائيل دخل في مرحلة مراجعة الأساطير المؤسسة للصهيونية بما في ذلك 
صوغة التواصل التاريخي بين يهود إسرائيل اليوم وبين اليهود قبل أربعة آلاف سنة أو ألفين سنة سؤالي أنا بعتقد أنه التاريخ الجديد في إسرائيل على الرغم من هالروح النقدية فيه ولكن أيضا هو عامل قوة لإسرائيل عامل قوة للمجتمع الإسرائيلي خصوصا بالنسبة للمتلقي الغربي اللي بيشعر أنه المؤرخ الإسرائيلي اليوم بدأ يشكك في الأساطير المؤسسة للصهيونية إلى أي حد يمكن تاريخ فلسطيني جديد عن القضية الفلسطينية يعيد النظر أيضا ببعض التابوات في هذا التاريخ الفلسطيني يمكن أيضا أن يترك تأثير على الفهم الأمريكي أو الأوروبي لجوهر التاريخ شكرا شكرا start with uh, Dr. Trachtenberg because she was short change of time. Okay. So just one. Uh, your, your, your question is whether, whether my research, whether my book has also covered the Palestinians in the diaspora, including Lebanon, which, which it does, but the emphasis is on trying to understand and describe what constitutes the status, the legal status, legal position, of Palestinians under international law. So the point of reference is the relevant areas of international law, refugee law, the law related to statelessness, the law, uh, international humanitarian law, to the extent Palestinians are civilians uh, under occupation, uh, and international human rights law, various, various areas of international human rights law. So I have very much an international, an international legal focus, but I apply that to the factual challenges that Palestinians face in, in, the, in the OPT, in the other host countries, including Lebanon, and, and more further abroad. Um, I think there are only a couple of questions for me. Um, but let me just mention, in regard to the Goldstone report, um, I think if we're going to wait for Palestinian and Arab diplomacy to make something of the Goldstone Report and the uh, uh, International Court of Judgment, uh, uh, Court of Justice judgment, we'll all grow much older than we are now. I think we should make of it what we can, because we, whoever we are, have much more effect than all of these governments, these useless governments. And, uh, uh, and I have to say, the Goldstone Report has had a major impact, in my opinion, uh, on uh, public opinion, in even in the United States, where it was completely excluded from the mainstream media, but where it has had rem enormous circulation, for example, within the Jewish community, and has caused a huge infisam, uh, uh, a huge split uh, over Gaza. The Gaza war had an enormous impact in spite of the brilliant public relations operation, which was the core of the Gaza war. The Gaza wasn't a war. Gaza was an attack on a defenseless civilian population dressed up as a war and built into a brilliant, probably one of the greatest public relations operation of a movement which has always been focused on public relations. In spite of that, public opinion in the United States, I think, 
has been very negatively affected by the war and also by the Goldstone Report, in spite of the blackout on it in the official media. And this is an example of what was said during the previous session about the gap between elite opinion and political discourse on the one hand in France and public opinion in, or in Europe. It's also true in the United States. And in public opinion in the United States, uh, uh, it's hard to see these things, but you go to a university or you go online and you will see that this stuff is spreading virally, as it were. Um, George asks, George Gadda asks me, what has been done to counter the mystification in the United States? I mean, those of us who do what we do, do what we can do. Um, but uh, I, I think that, uh, that to expect more of what those of us who are doing what we can do uh, is to expect the impossible. Uh, I think that what we need is more parents who don't send their children to do engineering and medicine and to have more money invested in Arab universities by Arab governments that waste their money on electrodes and, and barriers and, and riot police and useless weapons that they never will be able to use if Arab governments would spend money on human capital and, Ara and, and, and Arab parents who have the capital would spend it on their children or invest it in universities here, there, anywhere in scholarships and so on and so forth, then in time we would have an impact, not just a few of us, the people who've been working for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and people of my generation and the few younger ones who are there. So I think the question should be turned inward to our society. And, and we should ask, why is our society not producing more in all of these? Why are we not investing in research institutes, like the Institute for Palestine Studies, for example? Um, uh, Lemis asked me about the peace process. Uh, I am not a fan of the peace process, Lemis. If you've read any of my writings, you'll know that I am one of the harshest critics of everything that's happened since Washington. Uh, there are a few harsher than me, but I think I've done it scientifically. Other people just bark. I actually try and analyze like a few other people. So I'm not a particular fan of the peace process. It is a fact, however, that the Palestinians were humanized by the Madrid, uh, uh, Washington, uh, Oslo process. Now, it's true, if you read the paper, which actually goes into it, that those, those gains were reversed later on. And you're right. Uh, Arafat was dehumanized again. The Palestinians were dehumanized. This was not a function of the peace process. This was a function of the Second Intifada which was a, a major defeat for the Palestinian people. One of, the, one of several major defeats the Palestinian people have suffered. I've had arguments over my analysis of the 1936-1939 revolt as a defeat. It was a great heroic effort uh, by the Palestinian people, but to victory. And many, many people sacrificed in the Second Intifada, and it was a terrible defeat. It was strategically misguided, and it was a terrible defeat. And that helped to har harm the image of the Palestinians. But as I said in the paper, and as I was able to say in my talk, in spite of that, some of the positive evolutions that I've talked about have continued. Um, finally, the question Dr. Maher, with the fact that the new the Israel story, يرون إسرائيل حيث يوجد حيث يوجد مؤرخون وعلماء وكتاب وأدباء ينتقدون النظام الصهيوني وينتقدون جذور الصهيوني وينتقدون السياسات والممارسات الإسرائيلية إلى آخره ويقولون في المقابل لا يوجد شيء في العالم العربي هو طبعا مش صحيح الذين يكتبون في إسرائيل حفنة أقلية اختار طبعا في الجامعات من أهم العلماء الإسرائيليين ممكن اعتبارهم من 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 منتقدين 
محمد الإسرائيلي على الأقل أو على الأقل ممارسة السياسات الإسرائيلية بينما في العالم العربي يوجد تيار هائل وواسع من من النقد الذاتي ومن نقد الممارسات العمدية ولكن هذا التيار مخفي بالنسبة للقارئ الأجنبي فأنا كنت كان يعني حكمي على ما 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 يوجد في رؤية الأمريكاني القارئ الأمريكاني أو القارئ الإنجليزي وهذا ما يوجد وبرأي أنا طبعا الكثير من المؤرخين من المؤرخون الجدد في إسرائيل من هم يعني العباقرة ومن هم الفرسان داني مورس على سبيل المثال عنصري صهيوني بغيض وأراءه غير معقولة إنما كتاباته حتى الآن أثرت تأثيرا جيدا على الرأي العام بما في ذلك كتابه عن 48 مع كل عيوب وكل ثغرات وعيوب هذا الكتاب وكذلك باقي المؤرخين الجدد طبعا بيبر كامل ورقة كاملة تتطرق إلى الكثير من من الكتاب والعلماء والأكاديميين الأمريكان والعرب الذين يكتبون في اللغة الإنجليزية والذين يؤثرون أيضا ولكن اضطريت إلى الاختصار يؤثرون أيضا على الرأي العام الأمريكي إنما يلعبون هؤلاء الإسرائيليين دورا هاما لأنهم إسرائيليين ولهم قدرة على انتقاد أشياء تانيا رينخارد على سبيل المثال أو شلومو ساند على سبيل المثال وليس الحرب يعني لهم الله يرحمها تانيا رينخارد توفى المرحومة تانيا كان لهم قدرة هائلة على الانتقاد وغير قدرتنا طبعا يعني مشطوب علينا لأننا عرب أو مؤيدين للعرب أو 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 هم إسرائيليين وطبعا تسأل سؤال عن تاريخ فلسطين الجديد إن شاء الله نقدر إحنا ننتقد أنفسنا دون تردد ودون أنا أنا عندي تجربة مش كلها إيجابية في هذا المجال حاولت أقدم لمجال معين مقالة بنتقد بعض ممارسات بعض السيادات التاريخية ولم ترفض لم يرفض المقال إنما وجهت بعشرات الاستفسارات ولا بطلت أنشر المقال يعني مش مسموح الواحد يعني ينتقد بعض الرموز التاريخية القديمة لا نتكلم عن حدا موجود على صيد الحياة منذ عشرات السنين إذا يوجد محرمات وخطوط حمر للأسف الشديد في التاريخ الفلسطيني والعربي بس أنا عالم عالم غيرك طبعا شكرا رشيد تفضل دكتور بمعنى I'll be brief. Um, first of all, I just want to make sure I'm understood correctly. I did not think there's an erosion of consensus scholarship. Uh, if I said that, I didn't mean to say that. In fact, I'm very optimistic about uh, the growing number of people who are working on uh, anti-Semitic theories. Recently, the United States has become a field of critical mass. And what we really need very badly in the United States is funding for the faculty and others to crystallizing uh, this, this uh, growing mass of people uh, and turning it into a very important subfield of study, at least in the United States. So I'm, uh, they all face a contradiction, however. In the academy, at least in the US academy, at least in this 
humanity is a little bit less normative than science is. Uh, most writings begin with a critique of nationalism as something that is an accident, and which is perfectly fine and easy to do once you've already uh, killed all the Indians or kicked out all the Palestinians and then you can do all the post-national stuff you want. Uh, but once, but since you're, uh, let's say, the case of Palestinians, involved still uh, in a conflict, ongoing conflict, of trying to assert their rights to freedom, justice, uh, return, etc., how can they adopt the basic core value of Wikipedia, which is truthfulness, authenticity, verification? Uh, they have to live inside this tension. And so uh, this is a very big challenge to these historians and authors and others. They have to find ways of being critical and not accepting any mythology they can. Uh, and at the same time, they have to find um, topics, lines of inquiry, uh, ways of talking about things that actually mobilize and help create or help Palestinians achieve their rights. And that's a very tough uh, balance to strike. Um, just very quickly uh, on the question of the internet, uh, I don't, again, possibly the context was not very clear, I don't mean there's a dichotomy between academics and industrial scene and the internet as a platform for delivery. I'm just saying it's a new terrain on which knowledge is produced and uh, contested, and academics are very much part of that than anybody else. Not the internet. Yes, yes. They're moving out uh, to forms of media. They're investing very heavily in forms of media and other ways of uh, affecting public discourse uh, uh, that are, they're not focusing on the universities as much as, uh, as before. They don't have much faith in academicians inside the universities of being able to persuade them. They're very busy trying to shut them up or harass them or uh, create difficult situations for them to establish new centers for Jewish studies or Israel studies and try to regain some ground. But as far as uh, the conflict is concerned, I think they're doing most of their work outside universities and trying to engage in that terrain as well for a lot of content matters. Um, uh, as to why certain stereotypes and how they may be related. Uh, I'm not a psychologist and I can't answer this question, but I would only offer this. Uh, most of the writings by uh, pro-Israel are not really meant to convince anybody outside the Jewish community. I would disagree in the, with anybody who would say that the primary audience is an external audience. The primary audience is an internal audience. And they're losing. And they're losing that battle. So. The idea of uh, victimhood, for example, is not to bring fear from Anglo-Saxons and make them feel guilty. That is a byproduct. The real issue is when they collect all this money and it goes out to every Saturday or when they uh, do fundraising for Israel, they want to make sure it goes to Israel and is effective in uh, playing the victim in a very successful way for those inside the mainstream Jewish community who are very much invested in channeling huge funds from the United States to Israel, very much invested in making sure that what people contribute goes to them as opposed to being internal uh, donations from the United States. The first intifada, for example, was a major crisis for 
and fundraising for Israel. And many uh, Jews in the United States start thinking, okay, now they see we can build the old people's center, we can start a new swimming pool, we can uh, give out money for this or that project inside the United States. And there was a real hemorrhage. And, and so there was great insistence on the issue of infrastructure that money be deployed. So I think it's a question of primary audience. And when some Arabs, as you say, slaves or they go to the Gulen areas, uh, it's also really not geared to them. It's more to the uh, audience. And the question of uh, um, John's question, uh, I've noticed that all your examples are from 1940s. Right. And I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, most of my generalizations, and I emphasize the word generalization with a broad brush, I try to do, uh, really are from the 18th and 19th century. And I do think that there, since the 1920s, there is um, crisis, especially inside the Protestant movement. And, and, and if you look at the missionary uh, part of that movement, uh, I would give you the work, for example, of David Hollington, with a colleague of mine who has recently written about this. Um, there's a huge and very tense discussion within that movement about what is the role of missionaries in the world. And there are many people who are trying to push it in a quote-unquote more progressive human rights direction than a religious, uh, maybe it's not religious, in other words, conversion direction. <coughs> okay? There is a big fight going on uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so your point is, and I, I would submit that the closer one looks, the more imperfection one sees. Yeah, and, and uh, history is very messy, uh, which has holds great hope for people who want to change. But uh, uh, those involved in writing about the past in sort of neat ways uh, are invested in making it far less messy. And if there's a really justifying current focus, it's far less messy. Thank you, Shara. بما انه هذه اخر جلسه تود باسم مؤسسه دراسات فلسطينيه نشكركم جميعا للبقاء لحتى هذه اللحظه ونشاهد